Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Yehuda Mirsky about his new book, Rav Cook, Mystic in a Time of Revolution, originally published by Yale University Press in 2014, with the paperback coming out in 2019. A powerful original thinker, Rav Cook combines strict traditionalism and an embrace of modernity, orthodoxy and tolerance, piety and audacity, scholasticism and ecstasy, and passionate nationalism with profound universalism. The little known in the English-speaking world is life and teachings are essential to understanding current Israeli politics, contemporary Jewish spirituality, and modern Jewish thought. This biography, the first in English in more than half a century, offers a rich and insightful portrait of the man and his complex legacy. Yehuda Mirsky clears away widespread misunderstandings of Rav Cook's ideas and provides fresh insights into his personality and worldview. Mirsky demonstrates how Cook's richly erudite, dazzling poetic writings convey a breathtaking vision in which the old will become new and the new will become holy. Yehuda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you very, very much for having me. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Yehuda, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Me? Okay. Um, well, my name is Yehuda Mirsky. I teach at Brandeis University in the Department of Near East and Near Eastern and Judaic Studies and in the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. Um, though I teach at Brandeis, I live in Jerusalem, um, and so, you know, uh, fly with some regularity. Um, I'm originally from New York. I grew up on the west side of Manhattan. I always hasten to add the pre-gentrified west side of Manhattan. Um, and, uh, you know, grew up in, in, in sort of a world of... Um, um, humanist orthodoxy. My late father, who was named David Mirsky, was a rabbi and a professor of literature at Yeshiva University uh, for his, and an administrator there for his entire life. Um, and over the years, I, um, you know, I've, I've sort of been been my 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 intellectual life and professional life is one that sort of tacks back and forth in many ways, between Israel and North America, um, between um, uh, Jewish studies and larger, or if we say say larger, but other areas of inquiry. I mean, I I did my BA in in English literature. I did um, a law degree and worked for a number of years in Washington. Um, on Capitol Hill and in the Clinton administration, I was in the State Department's Human Rights Bureau. Then eventually I did my uh, PhD in uh, comparative religion, and I did a few years of coursework in Arabic and Islamics uh, before um, heading back to uh, Jewish studies in general and and Rev Cook in particular. Um, And so I also straddle a lot, you know, the worlds of theory and practice and of politics and religion. And I guess one of the reasons I find myself so drawn have one of the many reasons I found myself so drawn to working on Ralph Cook um, for so long is that precisely because he's such a a large and um, eclectic figure uh, in, in terms of who he is, in terms of the things, the areas on which he touches in terms of the things that he was writing on and, and so forth. Thank you very much for that. How, how did you come to write this book? Um, well, it's a funny kind of thing. I was first, you know, it, it only took me, you know, however many decades. Um, I first became really aware of Rav Cook's writings in the late 1970s when I was studying in Yeshiva on the West Bank um, in Gush Etzion, the Etzion block, in, um, on the road between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It's a place with rather large history. Uh, one of the heads of the yeshiva was my late teacher, uh, Rabbi Yudha Mital, who was an important um, interpreter of Rav Cook's thought. Growing up, 
Uh, one had heard a bit about Rev Cook once I started working on him. Over the years, I discovered there were many more familial connections to him of my own than I'd known when I was when I was growing up. Um, but you know, in in the circles in which I grew up, Joseph Salvechik, Rabbi Joseph Salvechik, was the great culture hero. You know, sort of the great Lithuanian scholastic Talmudist with the PhD in neo-Kantian philosophy. Um, and Rav Cook, sort of, you just knew he was this sort of religious Zionist, poetic, mystic type or something, but he wasn't much on, our, on, our, on the radar. And then for a variety of reasons in the course of my first, even as early in my first year of study um, in, in the Yeshiva in Goshitzio, 1978, 1979, I became exposed to the writings of Rav Cook and was just very captivated by them, um, by the theology of culture by this remarkably expressive poetic uh, language uh, with which he that he developed to write about his religious experiences and to think about modernity for his ability to to see the large spiritual currents pulsating um, not very far from the surface of secular culture, which in many ways resonated very deeply with this orthodox humanism in which I was raised. But to be perfectly honest, um, yes, and something we'll be talking about, you know, he be part of what makes him interesting and controversial are the ways in which he is seen as the spiritual godfather of the settler movement in, in Israel. Certainly it's, it's religious wings. I mean, to this day, much of the, much internal discussion within the settler movement goes off on what would Ralph Cook have said about this or that, even though he died in 1935, and um, during those years, I was very taken with that. I was, um, I would say, a fellow traveler of the messianic wing of the settler movement. And I was very taken with that. So I remember one day in like somewhere in the years between 1978 and 1980, one afternoon, I was just gripped by the sense that one day I was going to have to write this man's biography. Then it's sort of, you know, so he was always in the background. He was always in the background. He was always... Um, hovering not far from things I was reading in literature or philosophy. Though over time, um, the other religious the thinker, theologian who came to influence me very, very deeply was was not Jewish at all. It's the, the, the Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and uh, part of what I, I, I began to make my own political journey, so to speak, from right to left with regard to settlements and much else, uh, but Rav Cook stayed with me for the the moral pathos, um, the universalism, and part of what's so striking about him as a modern Jewish thinker. It's hard to think of a thinker who's at one at the same time as nationalist as he is, and as universalist he is. And so, when I was working in the State Department of the Human Rights Bureau, a lot of what he did was very inspirational for me. Uh, so it it was a long time in coming, and but the immediate imp- impetus was. Uh, Sometime around in around 2009, 10 or so, Professor Steve Zipperstein uh, at Stanford University was editing this uh, series for Yale University Press, the Jewish Live series, reached out to me and asked me if I would uh, want to try my hand at a brief um, biography of Rev Cook. I often say that it reminds doing a brief a brief work about Rev Cook. It's like the Monty Python sketch about the All England Summarize Proust competition, you know, where you have to summarize all eight volumes of remembrance of things past in 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 thirty seconds or something. Um, but but we tried for it. Uh, we went for it, and uh, somehow it, uh, thanks to the patience of a lot of people, <laughs> um, it came to pass. We've been referring to the subject of the book as Rav Cook, and the title of the book itself is Rav Cook, Mystic and Time Revolution. So, of course, the term Rav means rabbi, but I'm curious, was this your decision to refer to him as Rav Cook? And why would one do so? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great question. Yes, it was my decision um, for several reasons. Part of it, uh, is simply uh, the man's rabbinical stature and place such that certainly in Israeli circles, even even secular Israelis, almost nobody calls him Cook. It's almost referred to as Rav Cook. Um, and indeed, I mean, we'll talk about it further perhaps much what I, what I was trying to do 
in this book is sort of take a lot of what's what's like a very central figure and set of questions and concerns in Israeli um, intellectual and cultural life and sort of transpose them into an American English key. Part of it, frankly, came from my own background. Yes, I'd freely admit, you know, I still have great reverence for the man and it would have been hard for me simply to call him cook. When one of my doctoral advisors at one point balked on uh, my referring to him as Rav Cook in the course of the of, of, of my, my dissertation, I said, well, if I were writing about St. Thomas Aquinas and I called him St. Thomas, I imagine that wouldn't be a problem, would it? And he said, he thought for a second, he said, I, you know, I, it seemed to recall, he may have said, I guess not, you know, it wouldn't be a problem as long as you're consistent about it or something like that. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, so, but that's, so that's, that's how the reasons are a mix of the principled and personal, I guess. So we mentioned before that this is part of, of Yale University Press's series, Jewish Lives. So had you previously read other books which had come out in the series? Was there any sort of structure they had to make sure the book fit in or was it quite broad? I mean, I my book was actually one of, it wasn't one of the very first in the series, but it came out fairly early on. So there weren't many to choose from. I think I may have read one or two more. Um, I, I would say like this, the idea was to try and write a, the way I conceived of it, was to write a book length essay on the man that would be on the one hand um, interesting and accessible for people whose knowledge of Jews, Judaism, Israel would come from like book reviews in the New Yorker or something like that. Um, But at the same time would be sufficiently um, interesting to have something to say to people who've been working in the vineyards of modern Jewish thought and Rav Cook studies for a long time. There had been no, there, there, because he's such a large and complicated subject, there are very few biographies of him. The last attempt by, of someone to write a serious scholarly biography of Rav Cook was the late Jacob Agus in 1946. And he actually did, you know, in retrospect, he, he did a very good job um, with it. Uh, but that was it. Um, even in Hebrew, um, we still don't have a full-length biography, academic scholarly biography of Rav Cook. There's like scores and scores and scores of volumes. Um, and there are some other books that are like mine and that they are brief one-volume biographies. Uh, but a full-length biography of him doesn't currently doesn't exist in any language. Perhaps another time we'll talk about a book that I recently published that attempts to be, so to speak, the first volume of that. Um, so, but the idea, what was interesting here was also there was a literary challenge. And the literary challenge was to craft a kind of idiom in which I'm talking about somebody who was a vital dynamic mystic who has elements of his thought that are also highly rationalist. And also that I'm not just talking about his ideas here. I was also very much in in my background, the years that I spent working in politics and so forth came to play in this book because I spent a good bit of time talking about where he fits or in the political and social processes in early 20th century Palestine and so on. So the challenge was to write, to develop an, an idiom, a literary idiom where I could talk about this mystic, this like, this, you know, intensely passionate religious mystic um, with an incredibly active public presence in public life. And to try to, to, to create a language in which I could talk about him both from the inside out and the outside in, where I could try to convey what are his mystical experiences and visions and philosophical and theological reflections as they are sort of like to catch them in mid-flight in his mind, while at the same time being able to step back and situate them, situate those, 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 those theological flights um, situate them in the larger arc of Jewish intellectual history and in the concrete social and political realities of his time. That was a real challenge. At the beginning, I'll tell you, I was struggling with it a lot. I just, I couldn't figure out 
how to do this. And then um, a for some years, I used to write book reviews for The Economist, London. And my editor was a wonderful uh, historian and journalist named Anne Rowe, W-R-O-E, Anne Rowe. And uh, when we were still in touch over the years, and one point she sent me a book that she'd written that was a biography of the poet Shelley. And I read, I took it with me on a plane somewhere and I read the first 50 pages of it. And there was just something about the style in which she wrote that unlocked something in my head. Um, I don't, I didn't go ahead and write a book about Shelley. Um, I didn't write a book stylistically i didn't mimic her style because her book throughout is very imagistic and so on much more than mine but it was just i'm i'm mentioning it because i'm sharing because some some of some of our listeners might find it interesting uh just to hear how i was able to the extent to which i was able to sort of crack this particular uh conundrum um this particular thing that I've been having trouble with in terms of getting my writing started. And once I read those first 50 pages from Anne Rowe's biography of Shelley, like I said, it just something unlocked in my head and I knew I had to sit down and write. I'd love to go back to what you mentioned before and also the title of the book. So Rav Cook, you referred to both in this conversation as well as in the book title, you referred to him as, as a mystic. And I think many people have an intuitive understanding perhaps of what mysticism is, perhaps not, but how would you define, what is your definition of, of mysticism and of a mystic? Right. Well, it's a funny thing, A, because the word mystic itself is related to the word mystery, right? So it's a sort of thing, you know, once you've defined it, you've defined it out of existence in some ways. Um, and also mysticism is this term that's, I mean, there are religious traditions that use the term, obviously in Christianity, use the term mysterium to talk about um, specific patterns of, of thought and, and religious engagement. Uh, but of course, this term mysticism, in the way that we use it, uh, is, is, of course, we use it in a very modern way, the same way we, we use these modern categories like religion and myth and symbolism and so on to talk about things, um, to talk about people of different times and different places and we're using terms that they themselves didn't use, right? Rav Cook never called himself a mystic, right? He did that, that term isn't in his, really isn't in his vocabulary. I mean, he knew about the word mysticism because he was reading things, but I mean, and, and of course the, 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 this, and, and no mystic and mystic, you know, there is no such thing as, I mean, as many scholars have noted for, for decades, there's no such thing as like a, a free-floating mysticism, you know? I mean, Jewish mystics don't have visions of the cross, right? And and Christian mystics don't have the spirit of the Mishnah come and study Torah with them and so forth. Um, so what do I mean? So by, by calling Rav Kook a mystic, a, I'm meaning to indicate his very profound relationship to the Kabbalah, to the Jewish esoterical, theosophical, we'll call it mystical tradition, um, which is very, very, very central to his thought world. Now, it's important to note that the Kabbalah is very much an intellectual tradition as much as it is a tradition of anything else, right? Much of the Kabbalah is as um, densely textual and richly conceptual as any other facet of, of Jewish culture history. Um, and also the specific uh, Kabbalistic schools out of which Rav Kook arose just to say Lithuanian Kabbalism was one that made a point of maintaining a highly scholastic character, which is to say that in, in this case, you know, mysticism does not mean the abandonment of reason. It's a way of channeling thought and crucially experiencing thought. And experience brings me to the second feature of the term mysticism here that's very, very important. Um, uh, Rav Cook is someone whose religious experiences, for lack of, I mean, religious experience is kind of like a pretty pale term 
uh, to describe sort of the intensity with which he he went about things. Um, but he's someone for whom his experiences of ecstasy, of illumination, of understanding, of making sense of himself and his time um, are central to his thought world. And also experience is, is central to his understanding of the human condition. One of the most arresting insights I ever heard about Ralph Cook, I heard it years ago from a wonderful scholar named Shlomo Fisher. Um, he's a sociologist and intellectual historian here in Jerusalem, and his long-awaited magnum opus on Ralph Cook's thought and religious Zionism is hopefully going to come out in the next year or two. He put it really, really well years ago when he said to me, you know, Rav Cook was able to talk about an extre- extremely modern kinds of subjectivity and personal experience and sound them out of the deepest recesses of Jewish tradition, Talmud, Midrash, and, and Kabbalah. Um, and so much of what Rav Cook's ideas are about are recognizing and validating his own experiences and the experiences of other people, right? So, I mean, this sort of gets gets us over finally a bit to to some of the substance of his ideas, if I may. Um, You know, Rav Cook, like all, like, you know, he he comes, he's born in 1865 in, in, in the Western, in Lithuania, uh, the western edges of the Russian Empire is in the throes of modernity, uh, reform, reaction, revolution, all these things. The Russian Revolution is just a few decades away. Um, he is a member of the rabbinic aristocracy, not by birth. He's not from a terribly noble or well-born family, but by virtue of his sheer talent and attainments and so on. Um, he's on one side of his family. He's from a very scholastic, intellectually-minded family, and the other uh, from a Chabad Hasidic family. Um, like so many people, he's preoccupied by, you know, the collapse of traditional Jewish life and community all around him, um, and tries to make sense of it and tries to articulate some sort of response to it. And what sets him apart from his rabbinic peers is his ability and willingness to recognize the subjective experiences of people rebelling against him and all he represents and doing so in the name of ethical, moral, uh, communal-minded passions that he sees as good and in some sense divine uh and so and so this notion of bringing the truth out of oneself the idealistic truth out of oneself is for him a central feature of the human condition and world history so those are the different ways in which this this term this term may be unartful or anachronistic of of the word mystic for him was this attempt to ring together these things where he's, the, 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 the spiritual traditions out of which he's working, the kinds of experiences that he's having, and the importance that he lays on subjective personal experience in his picture of the world, even when talking about very large political and social movements around him. So we, we spoke a bit about some of the, the material that, that he used to develop his, his mystical experiences, his mystical persona, Mishnah, Talmud, um, the Kabbalah. Um, so I want to dig a bit more into that. So what exactly were the sources that he was studying, both traditional sources as well as perhaps more modern sources that allowed him to develop into who he One was? One of the things that's remarkable about him is that is how well-versed he was in practically every branch of Jewish learning. I mean, it's it's just you read him and his texts. I mean, part of what makes Rav Cook a very interesting scholarly field is that in his theological writing, which mainly comes out of his uh, spiritual notebooks, 
most of the time he doesn't tell you what sources he's quoting or working with in his head. Uh, so there's some there's some indices, and also after a while you you sort of have a sense of things. But once once you start tracking him down, I mean, it's part of the part of the the fun of the detective story of it is is, is that he's he's just read an astonishing amount of, of material and has like a phenomenal memory for it. So what do I mean by that? Bible, Talmud, and its commentaries, medieval commentaries and modern, halachic literature, you know, centuries of, because also for much of his life, he's a working rabbi. He's answering, he's a rabbinic judge. He's answering questions all the time on, on points of Jewish law. So the, the library of uh, rabbinic judicial opinions. Um, the Kabbalah, of course, you know, the, the, the locus, the great text of the Kabbalah, the Zohar, but um, many other uh, Kabbalistic uh, texts, um, especially the works of Moshe Chaim Lutzato of the 18th century, the Ramchal, the various works of the Lurianic Corpus, uh, the Kabbalistic works of Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, the works of Lithuanian Kabbalah, 19th century Lithuanian Kabbalah, but also um, part of his intellectual um, equipment is, and this was something that I discovered in the course of my research and one of my um, hopeful contributions to scholarship on Rav Cook has been trying to make the point of the centrality of the medieval philosophical tradition to his work. I mean, when I started really digging into Rav Cook, I never thought that I was going to have to be reading up on technical points in the philosophy of Maimonides and similar medieval rationalist philosophers, but they were just there. Um, they were just there. And also seeing them in Rav Kook, I began to see how medieval philosophy lived on in, 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 in rabbinic circles in Eastern Europe much longer than we thought. And at times there's ways in which um, the, 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 the intellectual scaffolding of a lot of his issues comes from questions and debates in medieval philosophy on which he then builds in capitalistic terms. But also... And this is one of the things that's really interesting. It's the question that almost everybody asks me when I when we talk about Cook is how much non-Jewish stuff did he read? Because he clearly did. There's thinkers who he mentions by name, right? Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Kant, that sort of thing. He doesn't mention Hegel all that much, even though he's very Hegelian, right? Tends to stay away from Krochma, the great Jewish Hegelian, even though he's sort of clearly read a lot of him. Um, at times he he's talks, he's read Hermann Cohen, he's read William James or read about William James. He's also read literature. The thing is, he himself did not know any European languages, but he didn't need to. Um, the Hebrew and Yiddish periodical culture of the late 19th, early 20th century was remarkably rich. If you go to the website of the National Library of Israel, nli.org.il, um, there is a section there, a database, I think it's called Historic Jewish Press or Historic Jewish Newspapers, where they have PDFs of newspapers in Hebrew and Yiddish and Ladino and Arabic and English and French, you name it. And you look at them, and it's just, it's it's amazing how much was being written in Hebrew and Yiddish, um, including in quote-unquote orthodox publications about the intellectual and artistic and cultural trends of the day. There were books, there were digests of philosophy of Western thought being written in Hebrew, um, to which he had access, which we know he, he had access to. Um, the, the example I always give for his, um, his knowledge of Western culture and thought is that imagine you, have, imagine you knew an ultra-Orthodox yeshiva boy who didn't spend a day in his life in university, but had a number of friends who did, with whom he talked, and who would regularly go to the library and read through the latest issues of you know, the New York Review of Books. And that sort of thing, right? Um, and was remarkably creative. He would have some very interesting things to say. You wouldn't necessarily go to our imagined ultra-Orthodox yeshiva student if you wanted, like, you know, the state-of-the-art interpretation of the thought of Immanuel Kant. But if you were to ask him, tell me, what do you think about the thought? 
of the ideas of Immanuel Kant, you might hear something very, very interesting. Um, and that's and that's very much uh, the case with Rev Cook. Also, if we take a look specifically at the philosophers or the philosophical currents and and schools of thought that he seems to swim with in, in modernity, they are the ones which, like the Kabbalah, were very influenced by the heritage of Neoplatonism. So he's really in dialogue with like German idealism and, you know, Hegel and Schopenhauer and so on. Uh, but somebody like David Hume is rather foreign uh, to his thought world. Um, and the one other thing I'd have to say um, about philosophers is, of course, Spinoza, who, like so many modern Jewish thinkers, um, He's fascinated by by Spinoza and comes back to him again and again uh, from all kinds of directions. So to get back to the issue of translation, so we said that Rav Cook was able to understand so much in translation, which I think is something we've seen throughout history. Maimonides himself was someone who uh, was able to get so much knowledge from works in translation. So just to think about translation from your perspective. So translation was something that, that you had to do a lot of uh, when writing this book, because as you said, a lot of the material of Ralph Cook was not yet in English. There were some translations of, of passages, certainly, but a lot of the, the, the work of Ralph Cook was not yet in English. So what was the process like for you of, of translating this work? Was there, were there any particular passages that were difficult? In general, how, how was the process? Yeah, that's a wonderful question because he's hard. I mean, because he's a poet. And how do you convey? So there's a bunch of different things that I did. Um, first off, one thing, one point that I make, and this is a typographic point, is that when he's, quote, at times he has a passage, and he won't say, as is written in the book of Leviticus, da 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 he just like will insert a line from the Bible or from the Talmud or from the Zohar in the flow of what he's writing. Um, so when that happens, I italicize it. When I could identify it, I, um, I italicize it. Uh, just to give a hint to the reader that this is a, an, an illusion going through his head. Um, something else that I did, and frankly, this is where my undergraduate training as an English major came in handy, because he's striving very hard for a certain kind of poetic idiom, and he's striving very hard for certain kinds of poetic effects. Um, it, it's kind of interesting that when Ruff Cook actually tries, sets out to write poetry, poetry, like with stanzas and meters and stuff like that, it tends to be very wooden and didactic and not terribly successful. It doesn't really get off the ground when he's not trying to be quote unquote poetic, but just sort of writing what his theological musings are. He achieves stunning literary effects. Um, one thing that I did in terms of Bible translations, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, when I would consult double-check Bible translations for things, I not infrequently would go to King James. A, because I guess I'm a sentimental old fool about King James. But also there's something about these like archaic, elegant sonorities of King James that was helpful um, in capturing uh, the voice of, of, of this man who sees himself as speaking out of, you know, um, out of out of the long duration of 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 God's revelation, um, and and it was and there were some passages that were very hard to do. Some passages where I would simply leave the Hebrew in and then sort of put in parentheses, trying to explain uh, what what I what I hoped um, it meant. Um, and I think the only way to do something like this is also to be as a translator extremely upfront about the limitations of your translation. I mean, um, a, a different book that a book that I just translated much of is a book. My wife, Tamar Biala, um, just published a book called Dear Shuni Israeli um, Contemporary Women's Midrash. And it's an anthology of Midrashim, Midrashic writing done by contemporary Israeli women, um, which she published in two volumes originally in, in Hebrew and now in English with Brandeis. And um, I, I translated the Midrashic text. And at the beginning, I wrote a preface sort of telling the reader, believe me, these texts are much more powerful than the original than I'm able to convey. Um, and I think if you're being a, working as a translator, it's very important to try to do that, to be upfront about that. 
Thank you. It's very insightful. If we go back to, to the beginning of the book, even before the text of the book begins, we have a, a couple quotes. So there we have one quote from Walt Whitman about contradictions. And then we've got a statement of Ralph Cook, a translation, of course. It says, our only resting place is in God. So I, I want to just understand why. Why did he choose these quotes and how does it set the stage so, for the rest so of the book? The, the quote from Whit- Whitman is Whitman's very famous, you know, do I contradict from song of myself, right? Do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So, so Rav Cook is this figure who is jurist, poet, mystic, communal leader, um, prof- deep nationalist and deep universalist. Um, he is as erudite and concerned about the the most intricate minutiae of Jewish law as he is with the most, with the most far reaching ecstatic visions, right? He is somebody who from four square within uh, the rabbinic fraternity and power structure um, affirms uh, some of the, the some of the, the, the most um, revolutionary currents of, of, of modernity. Right. He has passages where he talks about, you know, the spiritual level of socialism, the spiritual level of anarchism is being a higher of socialism. Right. Um, so there's all these contradictions in there. And so I the, and parenthetically, years ago, I began to notice some sort of in, in sort of the the train, the strange stew that bubbles in my head. I began to somehow think of Whitman and Rav Cook as somehow not dissimilar to one another in certain ways, bearing in mind and controlling, of course, for the many, 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 many differences between them. Um, and then I actually saw a line from none other than Gershom Sholem, the great scholar of Jewish mysticism, where he said he saw he sensed certain affinities between Rav Cook and Whitman. And I thought, well, hopefully I'm not that far off. But Rav Cook's sense of contradiction is very much rooted in his I am large, I contain multitudes. As far as he's concerned, God is big. God is huge. So God can't really be restricted to any one mode, any one voice, any one, right? And so God speaks through all the forms of idealism and all the religions and all the arts and all the cultures and all of that. And the I am large in Whitman um, speaks to his sense of himself. Part of Rav Cook's thought is theorizing about his own experiences. Here I am, right? Here I am, this like really, you know, authority-laden rabbinic figure. Um, and I see something very godly and divine about these revolutions in the name of social justice, right? I often say sort of, you could, he he never put it quite in these terms, but his argument with his rabbinic colleagues would, you know, his his rabbinic colleagues, of course, despised all these secular revolutionaries who were turning the tables on them. These Jews were abandoning tradition and, and doing it in the name of Zionism, socialism and all of that. And his argument to them would be like, you know, my beloved colleagues, these people are not, rebelling against us so that they can go eat pork chops and cheeseburgers. They're, they're rebelling against the czar and they're being sent to Siberia. They're going to Palestine and clearing swamps. And what's more, they keep saying that we don't care enough about the Jewish poor and the Jewish masses and Jewish suffering. And they're right. They say our religious ideas are antiquated and they're right. Now he doesn't join them. What he says is like, because I can see how they're right and I can see how the tradition is still right. And if I can work out some synthesis in my head, then maybe I can also translate that synthesis into institutions and do something in the world. So, so those two quotes, right? I, I'm also part of why I quoted Whitman was also because Ruth Cook is in many ways a shockingly free spirit in the ways that Whitman is. And yet for him, when he writes our, own, our final resting places in God, he can go as far as he can. He can let these tempestuous whirlwinds of modernity swirl around and through him because he has this faith that in the end it all winds up in God, in this like great cosmic, you know, resolution of harmony, whether 
one thinks he's right about that or not. Um, that's how he sees things to my mind. So Rav Cook is, as you just said, a man who is very complex, who is full of contradictions, has many different views throughout his life, even at one particular time. And I think to some degree that could lead to people having not necessarily understanding him because he's got so many different aspects to, to him. And, and we said at the beginning as well that, that there are many misconceptions about Ralph Cook. So just drilling in there, what are some of the misconceptions that people have that you hope your book clarifies? Right. Well, you know, I always say, and I, I say this at the outset of the book, you know, if you usually say Ralph Cook, right? I mean, sort of like there's the incredibly simplistic misconceptions, right? Ralph Cook, oh, he's the rabbi who said you should love everybody. Oh, he's the rabbi who said you should hate Arabs. Um, or put a little more, you know, usually what, what people know about Rav Kook is, is that, you know, if they, if they know something, they know, well, he was the founder of the modern chief rabbinate, first, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi and the founder of the institution of the chief rabbinate, um, as we know it in, in, then it was pre-state Palestine. Now it's, now it's state of Israel today. And that he was sort of very much seen as the foundational thinker of the most important, he wasn't the first, but the first, most important thinker of religious Zionism. Um, and I would say that those 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 aspects are true, but they're in some ways the least interesting things about him. Um, so he is this founder of the chief rabbinate, um, which when he started it, he was not a reformed Jew. He thought that changes needed to happen in Jewish law. He disagreed very much with how the reform movement was going about it. He thought that change needed to happen as out of like an organic process of redemption of divinely guided of the Jewish people in concert with the rest of humanity in the land of Israel and so forth. Um, and he thought that, you know, this rabbinate that he was creating would sort of be help be sort of like a conductor of that eventual spiritual revolution. Of course, that turned out very much not to be the case. Um, most crucially, right. His son, Rabbi Tzvi Udakuk, um, was the spiritual leader of the vanguard of the settler movement, starting a little bit after 1967, but more importantly after 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. And Rabbi Tzvi said that, you know, that he was simply putting into practice his father's teachings, and if his father were alive today, this is what he would tell us to do. Um, and, and Rav Cook's, uh, so much of, and, and so people then assume that, um, that Rav Cook's ideas translate very in a one-to-one -one correlation into contemporary religious Zionism in all sorts of, in all sorts of ways. Um, and then, you know, even including religious Zionism's excesses, right? Last week, just last week. One of Israel's major television networks, Kanahadisre, uh, Channel 11, had an hour-long primetime documentary about Rav Cook and his legacy, which essentially, towards the end, laid the blame for the Rabin assassination at his doorstep, which I think is inaccurate, though I could understand why the person said that. So there's there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions there, but also even the fact that my choosing to write about him in a very biographical vein, and also unlike most of the scholars, I don't scholar, most of the students of his thought. Okay, I wouldn't want to call myself a scholar. Most of the students of his thought, or scholars of his thought, and I'm one of the students. Um, usually don't discuss his thought developmentally, right? In, in, in my work, I very much trace the evolution of his ideas over time. Now, if you're looking for somebody to be an authoritative canonical figure who always, from whom you always get the answer about what you're supposed to do and who never changes his mind, that's not the way to look at it, right? And some people have problems with, with my, my doing that. Um, and, but I think that, I mean, so I think there are any number of people and many people in Israel for whom Rav Cook still needs to be this authoritative figure and his canon needs to be read, you know, in a way such that it can brook no, contra no contradictions. Um, but one, one thing that I say in, in very much in the Israeli context where these things are very alive, I don't take an opinion on whether or not, I don't take a side on whether or not 
Rav Tzvi Yehuda was right or not in interpreting his father's teachings. He had to interpret him. His father died in 1935. Tzvi Yehuda lived for decades afterwards and had to face a different reality. I think we all, to the extent to which we in, and, and clearly his father, the elements that Tzviuda saw in his father's teachings are quite there. I think when we, when, the, when you're working not as a quote unquote dispassionate scholarly observer, if there is such a thing, but if you're, if you're working with an authoritative religious figure um and their ideas as a guide to action in the present, I think that how we decide to interpret uh, the figures we deem authoritative is itself a moral choice. And we have to take responsibility uh, for, for the moral and ethical dimensions of the interpretive choices we make. You, you said that Rav Cook's thought has changed over time, that he thought certain things at an early period of life, perhaps he changed certain certain opinions. So just just um, as we're closing, as we're thinking about Rav Cook and uh, and his thought. So in what way? So we, we saw that he moved to Israel when he was almost 40 years old. And of course, he had a long period before that. Um, and you've got another book, which which really covers that period, which will lead to a separate conversation. But if we look at his, his period in Israel, how, how did he change? How did he develop once he got to Israel and became the rabbi well, and okay, the chief right. rabbi? So, I mean, and again, as, as you said, I, I, I've worked on this for a long time. There were some elements of continuity. Things like an interest in subjectivity and expressivism was there before. Um, he was always, for him, the relationship between the Jewish people and non-Jews of goodwill was something that always intrigued him. The relationship between Jewish morality and universal ethical morality and the ways in which they can support one another interested him from the get-go. Um, amazingly, in when in light of his, his life after he moves to Palestine, um, what, what's amazing is the absence in his early writings of the land of Israel. It's just not there. I mean, it's there in the same way, like in any self-respecting rabbinic figure, the land of Israel is going to show up and all of that, but it's not a category of thought and it becomes a category of thought. And also once he's in the land of Israel, he um, he's, he's tending towards a somewhat messianic reading of modern history before, and that emerges full-blown, right? He comes to have eventually no doubt that he's living in messianic times. Um, he gives himself entirely over to, to, um, he, he sort of gives himself in, in one of, in, in a, in a journal entry, in one of his journals shortly in, in the first notebook that he keeps after moving to Jaffa in 1904, he has a line in there where he talks about himself as the kind of person whose God is fashioned in such a way as to make him receptive to ideas and thoughts and sensibilities from people all around him. And there's this way in which he was an open-minded person before, but there's ways in which he sort of radically opens himself up to the people around him, including his opponents, and, and, and is willing to sort of, sort of stand in and absorb the gusts of, of feeling and, and commitment um, that are swirling around him um, over time, but there's ways in which his 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 thinking his thinking during World War One becomes a bit more apocalyptic. Understandably, his thinking about rabbinic institutions changes when he's early on in his years in Palestine. He's the rabbi of an important city, um, but of one important city, Jaffa, um, and he's wants. He supports the authority, the autonomy of local rabbinic courts, even as he's trying to build a network. When he becomes chief rabbi, he has these ideas of a much more centralized authority, right? He becomes of a piece with other state and institution building efforts done by the Zionist movement. And then, of course, there's a big question with him is the last decade of his life. Um, much of much of his writing from then still has yet to be published. And his writing then, you know, as, as the 1920s wear on and become the 1930s, um, Messianic Redemption seems not quite as close at hand as it did before. Um, there's starting, especially in 1929, 
um, the 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 riots of 1929 and the increasing mounting Arab Jewish violence, um, which he tries, you know, which he grieves and which in his way he tries to stem somehow or not give into, but he has a very hard time with that. And, and there's this more muted quality uh, to his, to his thought over time. So those are some of the, some of the changes that he undergoes. Thank you very much. There's so much that we could that we could go into, and we could go for hours. We can go all night, but I think that um, so that people buy your book, and also so we make sure that the podcast episode is is a good length. I, th- I think we'll close there with the with the questions about the book, and we'll move on to the traditional New Books Network question. Please tell us what are you working on now? Okay, uh, well, that's a great question as always. Um, two things. One is, um, as you mentioned, I've also written about a book about um, Rev Cook's early years. It's much longer and much more, quote unquote, academic in many ways than this book, you know, platoons of footnotes and, you know, lots of dangling modifiers and qualifying phrases and things like that. Um, so I'm trying to work on a Hebrew edition of that. I've done a Hebrew edition of this first book, and which got, you know, a surprisingly nice reception um, here in, in Israel. Um, and I'd like to um, take a break from Rev Cook for a while. I'm sure if we could ask him in his heavenly abode, he'd be glad, relieved to know that this odd American is taking, is like, you know, letting him off for a while. Um, and my next projects, I hope, will be uh, focused on sort of the, some of the other areas of like very profound interest to me uh, that I mentioned earlier, political thought human rights, um, the deep ties and tensions between human rights and theology and nationalism and liberalism. And I'm actually thinking of writing something about the post-war years of the late 1940s. Um, and when, when so many, so much of the world order that we see coming apart today took shape then, um, and as of now, that's kind of what, what I'm thinking of or hoping to, to do if I, uh, if I live long enough. Thank you so much. We have been talking to Yehuda Mirsky, author of Rough Cook, Mystic in a Time of Revolution, originally published in 2014 and published in paperback in 2019. Happy reading, my friends.